just just so we know, a hard stop at seven thirty, correct? So that is the goal. I mean, I've, I've got we've yes, you know, I'm gonna hard stop seven thirty. Let's let's keep that in mind. We have to get through <laughs> this part because there's a there's a hard stop. But we hey, I'll I'll bail at seven thirty in solidarity if it makes it. <laughs> <laughs> I think at seven thirty, Brian's gonna be the only one talking at that. Time. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, uh, so. I'll, I'll be like making I'll be sending messages saying, hey, can you send me some audio of you saying this thing that I can splice in? Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> Um, uh, so disingenuous. Okay. All right. <laughs> so then, uh, then let's rock and roll. Completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my God. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. Not obvious that we are professionals. You are not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Give us a recap. Give me a recap, though. Let where, me where we are left off and everything. Shut your mouth. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast, where I, Brian, a history nerd, try to teach good history to my Sigma grindset minded friend and co-host, Mike. Welcome back, buddy. Uh, we are. How you doing, my friend? Very, very good. I uh, sorry to cut you off. We are again joined by the very talented, very funny comedian, actor, and now uh, I believe disease expert Larry XL. Larry, thanks for joining us again. Yeah. How's it going? Going all right. So, uh, gentlemen, in part one, uh, we talked about the devastating effects of smallpox, how people dealt with outbreaks either through isolation or inoculation. We looked at the specific ways the disease runs, it co- runs its course in the human body, which was pretty gross. And we left off with George Washington surveying his troops for the first time, July 4th, 1775, just outside Boston, a city under siege by both the Continental Forces and by smallpox. Meanwhile, the Continental Congress debated whether or not to officially roll the iron dice. So that's where we are, iron dice in hand, ready to roll. So I want to start today. Uh, with a quick story about John Patton, a mm-hmm. pretty typical Continental sur- uh, soldier here at the early stage of the war. On April 19th, 1775, British troops fired on militia at Lexington and Concord, as I'm sure you both know, the famous shots heard around the world. And immediately following, American troops besieged the British in Boston. So John Patton's father, Matthew, kept a diary at this time. And on April 20th, he wrote, quote, I received the melancholy news in the morning that General Gage's troops had fired on our countrymen at Concord yesterday and had killed a large number of them. We met at the meeting house about nine of the clock, and the number of 20 or more went directly off to assist them. And our son, John, intended to set off for our army tomorrow morning, and our girls sit up all night baking bread and fitting things for him and John Dobbin. So these guys are from New Hampshire, so they're not far from Boston. And John Patton, along with 44 other men, drilled for about an hour. So they did military drills for about an hour, and then they marched south from uh, their New Hampshire home to Boston. They were volunteers. In the early phase of the war, enlistments were brief, and soldiers really seemed to just come and go pretty much as they pleased. For example, by May 1st, just 10 days after he left, John Patton was already back home. But then he was back in Boston and shot in the arm during the Battle of Bunker Hill on June 17th. He was again in Bedford, New Hampshire on July 5th, either recovering or possibly on furlough. Matthew Patton 
uh, whose diary is dreadfully boring, by the way. I mean, he basically, it's not a diary of his innermost feelings. It's like, caught a salmon, made a barrel, John's home from the war. Anyway, Matthew Patton wrote that day um, about catching some fish and uh, making a washing tub. And then he mentioned uh, that nothing else was going on until the 11th when John would again set off for the army. The family sent John warmer clothes in October, and then he returned home at some point um, after after that. I'm not sure when. And then he returned to the army again December 9th. So, again, I mean, this is sort of crazy. I mean, he's just back and forth all this time between April and December. He makes at least like four trips back and forth home. When we're talking about the Continental Army, especially at this early stage, understand that we are talking about mostly just dudes who are like, sure, I can go shoot a gun on Saturday. They're basically podcasters. Are you available Thursday? Yes, I'm available Thursday. I got an hour. Well, that's the luxury of having like a war on home soil. You can go home between skirmishes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You you yep. are correct. Yeah. Home cooked meals, everything. The whole thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Getting laid. <laughs> now, that is the advantage of the home co- of, of the home cooked meal, of the home court advantage. But this degree of mobility also presented challenges to troop readiness and also helped spread disease, right, from from camp to home. Mm -hmm. So Patton returned home for the last time on March 2nd, 1776. After a brief stay, and I'm keeping these things vague when I don't know specifics, the the 23-year-old Patton marched north to to join fellow soldiers in their campaign to take and recruit Quebec into the war as a 14th colony, something I'll bet you didn't know about. And we are trying to get Quebec involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a terrible idea. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I actually, actually, I visit Canada enough that I know like a little bit about uh, America's uh, um, uh, transgressions Foibles. Uh, against uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Canada, and I actually have a joke that I, I basically do when I'm up in Canada about like the ham-fisted way America tried to invade. Canada. Sure. Yeah. Please, let's hear it. Let's hear it. No, well, here's the thing. Like, uh, see, America got the idea to invade Canada, but America was dumb enough to try to invade Canada in the winter. And if you've ever been in Canada up in the winter, you pretty much know that is the dumbest thing you ever want to do is to try to go up there, especially if you were not prepared for how cold it gets up there. So it was basically just a a, one of those situations, kind of like when you know Napoleon tried to take over Russia. It's like, you know, it's vast. It's cold. And if you don't have those Canada goose jackets, that's your ass. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, we are going to talk yeah. specifically about that debacle uh, a little bit later in this episode. In fact, it's sort of the last kind of, um, it's kind of the last segment that we're going to talk about. But, uh, I am very glad to have an expert on hand. That's very nice. I'm not an expert. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert. I just, you know, talk shit. And so that like, <laughs> like it's not like I it's not like I do research. I just think one or two facts and I run with it. You know, like I could probably work for Fox That's... News. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, except for except for you have one or two facts. None of the yeah. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so they went to to Quebec and like most other kind of rural New Englanders among the ranks, and we talked about this last time, but uh, in New England and in the South in particular, uh, inoculations were either illegal or really, really hard to get. Remember, they're really expensive and all that. So like most rural New Englanders among the ranks, Patton had no smallpox immunity, and this was a fact that would prove devastating to Continental forces generally and eventually John Patton specifically. The Canada campaign was the last uh, was the last adventure of the 23 year old's life. So, um, but we'll get to that. Now, George Washington, back to him, was many, many things. He was an unrealistic tactician. He was a brutal slave owner, not necessarily the worst, but by no means kindly. 
Uh, he was a greedy aristocrat who literally conned a bunch of veterans who served directly under him out of some 20,000 acres of land in the Ohio Valley. He was a man whose wartime strategy turned running away into an art form. But one thing that no one can take away from the man is that he was an inspiring leader whose long-term vision and strategy ultimately succeeded, albeit only after the war became global and the British diverted resources to defend more valuable colonies in like India and the Caribbean. But still, give credit where credit is due. So regardless of his long-term vision, in 1775, even Washington could not imagine the significant problems smallpox would eventually become or would be for the, the army. It is important to note that in 1775, the war had just begun, right? Most people expected a quick, peaceful resolution to sort of come about. Um, but as 1775 turned to 1776, the conflict escalated. There were more meetings, uh, armies formed, groups of people gathered and dispersed more often. And when they did, they carried correspondence and resolutions and troop movement plans. And they also carried microbes like variola major. By the end of Washington's first full year as commander in chief, smallpox had erupted as a distinctly American affliction. From Boston to Quebec to Virginia, Americans on both sides of the conflict suffered and died in astonishing numbers. Uh, and then, of course, this impacted countless more lives beyond just the deaths, right? So smallpox arrived in Boston, actually in about 1774, or at least in that area, as British troops occupied the city as part of the coercive acts, or in this country, what we call the intolerable acts. By December, Boston, Cambridge, and Charlestown were all infected with smallpox. And it's really hard for us to imagine today, but 18th century Boston, for those of you who are familiar at all with Boston, was like nothing like it is today, where landfill has completely altered the geography from then until now. So back then, it kind of looked like a little spoon. It was a thin strip of land, and Boston was basically like the spoon, uh, like a peninsula jutting out into the harbor with this little strip of land that connected to the mainland. All of that is filled in. So anyway, so it's completely different. So that's important to understand just because after Lexington and Concord in 1875, the Continental Army blockaded the neck that led to Boston, essentially trapping the 13,000 some odd people there, uh, but also the British soldiers, so that they would have no access to the rest of Massachusetts by land. They could only resupply by ship, right? So they're pretty limited, especially, uh, was, you know, this was a siege to kind of limit their access to food and all that stuff, especially keeping in mind that we're talking about the age of sails. Okay. As the siege dragged on, um, the people, though, that live in Boston become, of course, hungry and waste piled up. And by summer of 1775, Bostonians were, quote, very sickly, from 10 to 30 funerals every day, but no bells allowed to toll, end quote. The misery was just boundless in Boston. But for Washington's army, Boston represented a real, like, virulent threat. Um, I mentioned earlier that New England had the strictest restrictions on inoculation. Um, you may remember they were in New England was where they were like, inoculation is illegal until they have an outbreak. And then they're like, oh, no, 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 it's, it's legal now if you're rich enough to afford it. And then as soon as the outbreak was sort of tamped down, they're like, okay, it's not legal anymore, um, which is a good policy, I think. Anyway, Washington. Um, Very free-flowing policy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the reason, again, I keep bringing this up is because that means that the people who live in Boston are especially vulnerable to smallpox, right? Americans in Boston are especially vulnerable to smallpox. Washington understood that inoculation would reduce military vulnerability in the long term. But even if he did like a piecemeal inoculation program, that would be a grave threat to things like troop readiness, right? Um, on the other hand, uh, if they did like a mass inoculation, 
it would render all of the troops incapacitated for nearly a month, and the British would only need to sort of get the timing right, and they could take the whole army and end the war before it really even, you know, got started. So for Washington, inoculation was too risky. He implemented kind of strict preventative measures. He established a hospital near Cambridge, which, again, far enough away from where they were sort of on the outskirts of Boston that you could kind of isolate people a bit, but close enough to get to and from. Um, And then he barred anyone from going anywhere near the hospital. He even posted a guard on his like second day, uh, his second day in charge. He posted a guard to prevent people from like visiting uh, smallpox victims in the in the hospital. He wrote to President John Hancock promising to exercise, quote, the utmost vigilance against this most dangerous enemy, end quote, meaning smallpox. Uh, Sir William Howe, who was in charge of the British soldiers there at Boston, he had his officers poll all of the British regulars uh, about whether they had been previously exposed to smallpox, like as children or back home. Then he implemented mandatory inoculation for anyone who had not been exposed, right? So because, again, um, smallpox was endemic in all the cities and towns in London or in, in England. Most of these guys had who, who were serving had at some point or another probably come through smallpox or at least a, a large enough number of them that you could then just inoculate the guys that hadn't and it wouldn't destroy your army. Right. I mean, it would just, you know, lay up a few dozen guys at a time. So after the mandatory inoculations, he later made them voluntary, but highly encouraged. And I imagine highly encouraged means, you know, the red coach shows up and, and puts his bayonet on your back and says, it's up to you. You're allowed to do what you want. But um, but the general would like you to get inoculated. But you're free to choose. <laughs> Don't back up. Um, anyway, Howe's strategy worked and it became like kind of the unofficial British policy. This is what all of the British armies will do throughout the war pretty much everywhere. They'll They'll do this kind of what I'm going to call a rolling inoculation where they, every time they get to a town and there's an outbreak, they'll pull the soldiers and inoculate the guys that are, that are vulnerable. So as a result, the British never really had to worry about smallpox impacting troop strength or readiness, at least not for regulars. So again, smallpox is an American problem. So they will have this problem when they have Americans serving yep. with them. Okay. That's right. So lots of people, Wanted out of uh, out of Boston. I've never been in a city that was under siege, but um, I imagine it would be hell pretty quickly. Um, I know just from from hurricanes coming through when everything goes on lockdown during hurricanes and things like that. Um, I remember when Irma came through, I, I boarded up all my windows. I actually made a plexiglass, like double plexiglass windows so I could see out uh, during the storm. because It was like we're going to be so blocked in. It's going to be you're going to go crazy if the storm sits on top of you for a couple of days. Uh-huh. So I wanted to have some kind of window to see out of so I could know, A, that it was sort of, you know, calming down or whatever. If we're underwater or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, so lots of people went out of Boston, but they're trapped between the Continental Army and essentially the Atlantic Ocean. By November of 1775, uh, General Howe actually forced some 300 or so residents to quarantine at Port Shirley, you know, who were sick. Um, and then he allowed inoculations for residents who could afford them. Mm-hmm. So it takes until November before he allows inoculation to come in. The British, and again, this is the logistical thing, right? I mean, if everybody's sick in the city and you're the soldiers kind of there, quote unquote, protecting it, you have to do something about that. So you really want to try and quell the, the outbreak, even, you know, because you're not at war with the people necessarily, not all of them anyway. Sure. So the British gave up the city in March of 1776. And by then, Washington's strategy worked. His troops were bothered more by colds than by smallpox, and 
he was able to send like a thousand immune men to guard Boston. And then many of the other men just went home. Although if you remain behind to see what um, General Howe would do after fleeing from Boston, going to New York. So after the siege, Bostonians kind of went mad for inoculations. Uh, General Artemis Ward, the, the uh, Continental General, inoculated vulnerable troops that remained, right? The, the ones that stayed behind uh, after most of them went home. The uh, Harvard College at that point postponed commencement because there were so many people uh, so many students that were like being inoculated and were, you know, so sick from inoculation. Mm-hmm. And this was when Abigail Adams was inoculated with her kids. The story we told last time on July 4th, the preacher Manasseh Carter wrote, quote, Lord's day, period, preached, period, sacrament, period, pretty full meeting, period, concluded to go to Boston <laughs> to be inoculated End quote. So I, I just I love it. I love it. It's just great. Um, it's great. It's very insightful. Yeah. Almost TikTok. <laughs> it is almost TikToking. You're absolutely right. Uh, Hannah Winthrop wrote that inoculation was, quote, as modish as running away from the troops of the barbarous George was last year, end quote. So modish being like fashionable, like modern fashion. So she wrote that, that getting inoculated was like the cool kid thing to do. So it was as cool as running away from the troops yeah. was the year before, which I think is a doubly fun quote. <laughs> It's not quite as, as cool as, as, as it is necessary. Here's the Paris Hilton every day. Yeah, right. Definitely. Paris Hilton. <laughs> I love, yeah, I like the, the, the cool kids, you know, <laughs> what are the cool kids doing this summer? Getting inoculated. Yeah. Oh, that's um, Good stuff. So nearly 5,000 people were inoculated in the, the couple of months that followed the occupation. And by August 22nd, the outbreak kind of began to wane. Washington's army had largely avoided the disease, but as reports from the Virginia theater started coming in, it was clear just how lucky they really had been. In December 1775, George Washington furiously wrote a a letter about Virginia's governor, Lord Dunmore. Quote, that arch traitor to the rights of humanity, Lord Dunmore, should be instantly crushed if it takes the force of the whole colony to do it. End quote. Not happy with that guy. He wasn't happy with him. So the question is, why did G-Dubs hate this dude so much? <laughs> How did Dunmore betray the rights of humanity? I'm sure you're dying to know. Well, Lord Dunmore issued a proclamation in November of 1775 that set free, quote, all indentured servants, Negroes, or other apart- apperta- or others appertaining to rebels, end quote. So he freed all enslaved people all indentured servants and anybody who was under contract labor that was like temporarily sort of owned for any period of time. Uh, if they were quote, able and willing to bear arms for his majesty's troops. So, you know, it's a tactical decision. Let's, I'm not going to give Dunmore more credit than he deserves because he is himself a, a slave owner and not a good guy, but uh, pragmatic and does sort of issue this, this, I mean, offers freedom during the American revolution that everyone is spouting liberty and freedom about. Mm-hmm. Okay. You may be surprised to learn, in fact, that Virginia's liberty-loving, freedom-proclaiming wealthy patriots were infuriated, which is surprising. You would think since they loved liberty and freedom, they would all say, this is a great plan, a great idea, a great humanitarian cause. But they were, for some odd reason, all big mad. Um, of course, the most burdened of Virginians were as enthralled as the wealthiest were angry. But uh, Virginia's legislature passed a resolution that was pretty harsh. It said that 
any enslaved people caught attempting to flee to Dunmore would be executed without the benefit of clergy. George Washington's position was consistent with others of his class. So to be clear, uh, he's not a particular monster in this, though it was not the majority opinion. I think this is worth pointing out. Like Washington does not represent the majority of people in Virginia. Probably about 20% of Virginia's white population were loyalists and 40% of the population were enslaved. So we know for sure that the 40% of enslaved people, the 40% of the population certainly did not agree with George Washington's position on this, right? Sure. Um, not to mention indentured servants. And then to be honest, it's really hard to know the exact number of white patriots there were, but most historians put the number somewhere just under 20% mm-hmm. in Virginia that there were fewer patriots than there were loyalists in Virginia, certainly at the beginning of the war. Most people, however, were what we call fence sitters, people with little stake either way. Uh, people who are not like landowners who are not trying to basically, um, you know, get away from taxes, which is not really true, but like wanted to be the recipients of them rather than the payers. Right. Um, and it also bears noting that we know even less about women's views on the matter. You know, 50% of the population for whom we have no real idea what their opinion was about independence versus loyalism or what have you. Right. So Washington, his view really represents a small elite core sure. and no one else. So so basically slave owners back then were basically elitists anyway. They were the, the more well. I mean, not basically. I mean, they that's, were, they were yeah, wealthy, for sure. I mean, people. I mean, there are large property owners. There are a number of what you might call smallholders, kind of the yeomanry, people who might have anywhere between, say, one and five combination of indentured servants and enslaved people live a very different life than, than the kind of plantation life that we're thinking. We're, these are mostly backcountry folks. Usually they're sleeping in one room houses, sleeping side by side with each other, working side by side in the fields and not to paint a rosy picture because it's not that, but like mm-hmm. it is a fundamentally different relationship than the sort of plantation complex that is a kind of, uh, it really operates as like an early style of, uh, agricultural factory and, and is an exploitative based completely around exploitative labor just like any factory is based around exploitative yep. labor. Okay. And so the, the kind of yeoman farmer, the smallholder, um, it is exploitative, but it is a, uh, oftentimes you have a much more familial, uh, paternalistic, but more familial relation than you do with the. And the whole entire thing is an employment issue, correct? I mean, that's what it boils down to. So now these big property owners, these slave owners are thinking in their minds, well, hell, I'm, if I'm going to lose, my slaves, I'm going to lose my servants. Then, you know, what the hell, how am I going to produce what I'm producing? They're thinking of it as a business. Their business is getting crushed. Yes. They are putting money ahead of human beings. That is, you are correct. They are putting, they are putting extractive capitalist wealth. They don't give a shit about the ethics. That is correct. That is correct. Yes. So, okay. So, so they're in an up, so they're pissed off and they're, they're throwing a a shit fit about this. Correct. Now, because and then they're thinking, what are we going to do after this? How are we going to, you know, find employment? Because that's the entire. If you go back to the the reason for looking for to bring over slaves, wasn't that the entire reason to begin with? Was these rich guys had to get together and think? Well, yeah, they didn't want to work. We need someone. They, nobody to wants to work anymore. Right, exactly. Yes, that's correct. It was a, and there wasn't like it was there a, was an employee it, an employment office. It was a no rich people want to work anymore no, situation. There was no minimum wage back then. You know, there wasn't like a minimum wage where they could put help. They wanted passive income. 
They are landlords. Yes, they want exactly. rentiers. Yes. That's that's what this is all about. Yes. It continues to be the same today. It has never changed. And that was a worldwide yeah, I mean, it's never changed. It this is, yeah, right. it's not. It, it, okay, this is not the time or place. However. That would devolve into a whole other podcast. Th- slavery exists everywhere. Slavery exists everywhere. It has for all of time. American slavery is fundamentally unique. It is chattel. It is race-based. And it is uh, it is hereditary. And it is fundamentally different than it existed anywhere else. Christopher Columbus made sure of that. He fundamentally changed the way that that uh, relations existed in the Americas, and then the that the British in particular changed colonial existence, creating plantation style uh, economies. That is, that created a, a kind of slave system that is fundamentally unique. More, it's hard, I mean, how you compare these things and say worse is hard to say. So different but, than. The way that it is chattel slavery what goes on yeah. today, like in Africa with the, with its blood diamonds and stuff like that, that that's different, completely, Co- yeah, fundamentally absolutely. different. Yes, or or we or we could just get into the American industrial prison complex as well. Yes, yeah, I mean, absolutely. No, I mean, again, the the system has not the system has not changed. It has it has made tweaks around the edges, uh, and that's really it. Um, you are absolutely correct. Are we gonna are we gonna are we gonna eventually loop back to the uh the nonstop uh feel good party that is smallpox? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> from from joy to from the joy of slavery to the joy of smallpox. The the uh, unbalanced views whew, of history podcast takes you through all good. of humanity's greatest hits. All right. So we are, but give me a second. There is a point of doing all this. General Powell, the, General Howe. The Washingtons owned no fewer than 577 human beings during their time at Mount Vernon. Now, was that average? Was that above average, below average? That had to be above. That had to be like a big, George Washington big, big is, it is impossible to calculate exactly how much he is worth. He, he was worth. He was one of, if not the wealthiest president we've ever had. Okay. Wow. Okay. This was far above average far above elites he was now, among the wealthiest there had to be multiple multiple properties obviously he probably was a multiple landowner of many many properties correct we, it's it's incalculable how much how much land he ended up owning he was a land surveyor this is how he conned a bunch of his own soldiers out of land in the ohio valley he was a land yeah, there there's there, there's no lifestyles of rich and famous or mtv chris back then so we don't know the exact extent of that sure how how baller he was yeah i mean he we but know he, he owned definitely baller we know he owned something close to like fifty thousand acres of land um so fifty thousand acres of land and twenty thousand of them he conned out of uh out, like i said out of his own veterans by because he was a land surveyor and he's like hey i checked out all this land in the ohio valley that you guys are have received as a payment for your service in the war it's really that's not good land it's I'm I, I'll take it off your hands uh, because, you know, I'm rich and I can do that. And I, I want to reward you for your service. And so he conned a bunch of his guys out of 20,000 acres. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to back to Washington. Great father of our country. And I think a perfect, perfect, a perfect emblematic father of our country. OK, anyway. Um, so 577 human beings total during the during their time at Mount Vernon. Uh, that's not like at one time. I mean, the, the number fluctuates all the time because, you know, he's a piece of garbage who will like split families up and sell children and stuff off. Anyway, not to mention indentured servants and enslaved people that they would lease temporarily for like harvest and planting seasons. Anyway, by mid-December, Dunmore's ready fighting force had doubled from 300 to 600 men. Um, now, this does not represent even close to the number of people who fled to him. But keep in mind, in just a couple of weeks, his fighting force doubled, mm-hmm. right? Among them was one of Washington's white servants, a guy named Joseph Wilson, who fled to Dunmore from Mount Vernon. 
Lund, Washington, George Washington's cousin, wrote to George on December 3rd and said, quote, there is not a man of them, meaning the these enslaved and, and, and enslaved people and indentured servants. There's not a man of them, but would leave us if they believed they could make their escape. Liberty is sweet, end quote. And then he went back to managing the plantation. Good stuff. Dunmore had considered freeing slaves at least as early as 1772, actually. His reasoning now was pragmatic rather than moral. He assumed correctly that enslaved people would, quote, join the first that would encourage them to revenge themselves, end quote. Around the time of Lexington and Concord, in fact, Dunmore rejected a clandestine offer of alliance from a group of enslaved Virginians. Dunmore at the time only physically controlled Norfolk and Gwynn's Island and kind of the land in between. Uh, Gwynn's Island, we're going to talk about in a bit, is an island in the Chesapeake. And um, that, that was really the only place he had troops settled by the end of 1775. But Virginia elites were still seriously concerned by this offer, right? Even, and my point is, he only has this small area. It would be insanely, incredibly difficult for enslaved people to get to him. They have to cross so much hostile geography to get there. It would be, it's going to be an incredible challenge to pull it off. Okay. But Virginia elites were still seriously concerned. On December 26th, 1775, the day after Christmas, Washington has nothing better to think about. He wrote a letter warning Richard Henry Lee, quote, if that man is not crushed before spring, he will become the most formidable enemy America has. His strength will increase as a snowball by rolling, end quote. Lee, for his part, complained about, quote, our devil Dunmore, end quote. Brigadier General Andrew Lewis referred to, quote, the detestable Lord Dunmore. And Landon Carter, the son of Robert King Carter, dude so rich that they nicknamed him King, Dunmore was both cursed, or both, Dunmore was both, and, quote, a cursed enemy and a monster, end quote. Rich guys love this dude. (laughs) (laughs) Dunmore organized these self-emancipated men into what he called, and here we go, some good old-fashioned Britain, uh, into the, quote, Ethiopia Regiment, end quote, a fighting force of several hundred whose uniforms prominently showed their motto, liberty for slaves. So I like this idea. These guys have liberties for slaves emblazoned across their uniforms, and then they go into battle against these, like, Virginia slaveholders. I love it. I just love it. Like, that they have to fight, like, their own, like, self-emancipated, these people who are just like liberty for slaves, you know, any, any, if they did any fighting near plantations or anything else, this would be a huge inspiration to, uh, to every, at every plantation, right? At least that's the idea. Mm-hmm. In total, between like 1500 and 2000 enslaved folks fled to Dunmore, including women and children, even though he said basically you have to be able to like pick up arms and fight for the king. Uh, it did not matter. Women and children fled as well. Thousands more tried but failed. They were either captured by America's first police force, Ooh. the uh, like a professional police force, right. the slave patrols. That's the slave patrols. That's the first police uh, or, force. That is correct. Oh, uh, that's where policing that. policing in America starts. It was called what was that? It was, what was it they called? are slave patrols. Slave patrol. Police pol- policing in America is rooted in slave patrols. Patrol. People hired to there was bloodhound. no other police force prior to that. Yeah, it was it was local militia. Just self, you had, yeah, you had, cons- you had of... constables and sheriffs that were like elected, right? But not like a not a hired professional. Meaning, this is what you get paid to do. I got you, police force. I get you. So they were either captured by America's first police force, the slave patrols, 
or because of ge- geography, provision shortages, or bad luck, uh, they kind of didn't make it. Even among those who didn't flee, though, Dunmore's proclamation would alter the way they behaved in like public spaces. For example, this is the best story. In Williamsburg, an elite lady chastised uh, an enslaved man who did not step aside as she was coming through. Mm-hmm. Now, this is fantastic. You know, um, I've seen that happen a million times. You have not gotten out of my stepped aside, you know, whatever. And he turned on her quickly saying, quote, stay, you damned white bitch till Lord Dunmore and his black regiment come. And then we will see who is to take to the wall. End quote. Just good stuff. Um, no one has spoken to me that way. So the point is Dunmore's proclamation does more than just give people the courage to self-emancipate. It changes people's attitudes, right? Like enslaved folks are like, Hey, maybe Liberty for me. Like maybe that's a thing that I can consider now. That wasn't an option, right? That's just not an option. Enslaved Americans in all colonies uh, use the war actually as an opportunity to self-emancipate from Patriot masters. Despite the enormous cost of getting caught, including execution, as in the case of two captured Virginia runaways who were beheaded and then their heads stuck on pikes at the Williamsburg courthouse. Jesus. So next time you go to Colonial Williamsburg, Mm -hmm. just picture the two guys who tried to gain their freedom and had their heads cut off and stuck on pikes as a warning. Uh, you know, when you're thinking about liberty and justice at Colonial Williamsburg, just keep that memory in your head. But I, what I'm saying is this country has not, didn't start great and hasn't been perfect. Um, anyway, it started out with some pretty shaky, shaky moral territory. I think everyone would. Agree. But at least we're, we've gotten, we're, we're like perfect now. So that's good. We are on. Just as shaky ground. So, so, um, okay. So the Ethiopian regiment fought, quote, with the intrepid, intrepid lions, end quote, according to one sailor who witnessed them, which again, shouldn't surprise us, right? Like people who have run away from slavery and are given a gun and given some training and said, here, like fight. If you fight, you know, you win your freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you get caught, um, bad things will probably happen to you. Hence the pirates. Or, or, I, or, or I could just shoot you and just take my freedom anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense in a modern con- context. But like, where do you go? Especially in colonial America. Like, it's not like you can, like, where are you going to go? You ever seen, How are uh, you going to survive? You know what I mean? Like, there are real questions that today we have a lot more freedom. You could, you could do that easier today, I think. But it's a lot it's, harder than that. It's Django Unchained. Yeah, so I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, something. Never seen that. Yes, that. The, that's famous, exactly how that happened. Famous documentary in the, in the beginning. Famous documentary. Beginning. That was a true story. Django Unchained. <laughs> uh, it is. Very it is. Story. I mean, it, it. It is. I would. I would argue that it is a true story. It's a composite, but for sure, it, yes. it is certainly drawn from a lot of truth. I have yet to see it. It's. Um, it's a great movie. It, it's a. I find it to be a really hard movie to watch. It is hard I, watching Leonardo DiCaprio. In oh, that movie. oh, you know, and, what? It's, and it's hard to watch Sam I Jackson in that movie. I forgot about all that at the end. You're right about that. So that is it's so bad. hard to. He is I keep hard to thinking watch. about the beginning parts with because um, my favorite is the tooth guy, the tooth, the tooth, the doctor, the dentist. Um, what's his name? What's his name in real life? Um, shoot, I know it. I know it too, and I love that guy. He's in. He's in a lot of his movies. He's so good, Christopher. Waltz, 
Waltz. Oh no no no! The guy that played the the smiley yes, messy yes. in uh, Glorious Bastards, Bastards. Chris, yeah, 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 Chris that Waltz, guy. right? Yeah, yeah. Christopher Waltz. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, he's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. That guy's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, he is. I mean, he's the only Nazi I've ever seen in in life or on film that I that I found charming. Oh, he was. I'll give, I'll he give was him that. downright evil in that movie, though, man. He was just downright evil. Yeah, and uh, I didn't say he wasn't evil. I was said charming, he was charming. For sure, for sure, he was. Yeah. All right. So anyway, anyway, so the Ethiopian regiment fought with the uh, the intrepidity of lions. That is a hard word for me to say. According to the one sailor, Dunmore, uh, actually, he did something really stupid. He foolishly attacked an entrenched uh, sort of continental line near Norfolk. And uh, I mean, it was just dumb. He like took his men up there. They were exposed and these guys were all dug in and um, and they were about evenly matched um i think dunmore had a few, a few fewer troops but it was just like you're going up against like guys in trenches it was very stupid and they lost not surprisingly actually he had won an earlier battle and if he had just stopped it would have been fine but then he pursued the line farther up to where they were really deeply dug in it was it was a really bad tactical decision and the loss forced him to flee eventually to Gwyn's island um in the western chesapeake but first he established a camp at tucker's point near portsmouth Mike, uh, Mike had to go to Fisherman's Wharf real quick. <laughs> I'm with you guys. I'm with you. Okay. I'm with you. Now, smallpox um, throughout the 16th, I mean, 17th, 18th century had been endemic in much of West Africa. But by the 1770s, most enslaved people in the colonies were not African, but American. And so they were vulnerable to smallpox. They were not different than other people in Southern colonies, right? Um, and Variola got a foothold in Dunmore's flotilla as he was going down the river to, uh, to Gwyn's, well, to, to this Tucker's point. And, uh, they got, anyway, smallpox got a foothold in February of 1776. While at Tucker's point, there was a steady stream of runaway slaves and loyalists who were, uh, you know, looking for protection and they were like kindling thrown in a fire, right? Um, by May, Things were pretty dire. Physicians recommended mass inoculation, but Tucker's point wasn't defensible. So they couldn't afford everybody to be, you know, sick all at once. So they went to the strategically superior Gwyn's Island, right? An island is much easier to defend uh, at the end of May. When they left Tucker's point, they destroyed all the buildings uh, and then uh, and then fled across to the island. But they left 350 graves behind to give some idea of how bad things were in this short little span of time from like March to May, some 350 graves, many of them with multiple bodies. Gwyn's Island uh, was not any better. A witness described, quote, the shattered remains of the Ethiopian regiment, end quote, uh, arriving on Gwyn's Island so sickly and weak that Marines from the nearby ship Roebuck had to set camp for them. Like they weren't even able to set up their own camp. Despite raging smallpox and difficulty reaching the island, Runaway servants and slaves still arrived steadily. The Ethiopian regiment gained six, sorry, the Ethiopian regiment, quote, gained six or eight men every single day, end quote. They succumbed as swiftly as they arrived, however, and in June, Dunmore lamented, quote, had it not been for this horrid disorder, I should have, I should have 2,000 blacks with whom I should have no doubt of penetrating into the heart of this colony, end quote. Just like at Tucker's point, black troops suffered the most. Mass inoculation progressed on Gwyn's Island, and many got, quote, through the disorder with great success, end quote, until, like bad luck upon bad luck, a fever, probably typhus, swept through the pox-ridden camp. 
quote, dozens died daily from smallpox and rotten fevers, wrote one eyewitness on June 23rd. Dunmore's little army was devastated. The Loyalists abandoned the Epestulan Island on July 9th as Virginia Shirtmen, which was the name of a militia, uh, gathered on the shore. Only about 300 black folks remained, a shadow of the more than 1,000 men who made up the Ethiopian regiment just a couple weeks earlier. The grotesque scene that was left behind was described by Virginia Shirtman, quote, On our arrival, we found the enemy had evacuated the place with the greatest precipitation, and we were struck with horror at the number of dead bodies in a state of putrefaction, strewed all the way from the battery to Cherry Point, about two miles in length, without a single shovel full of earth upon them. Some, some still lived, gasping for life. Some had crawled to the water's edge who could only make known their distress That's by disgusting. beckoning to us, end quote. Some of the men had burned to death, too sick to move when parts of the camp caught fire oh. during the evacuation. There were at least 130 graves, quote, many of them large enough to hold a corporal's guard, which was seven to 14 men, end quote. They counted about 500 bodies, all lost in just 41 days between May 29th and July 9th. Good Lord. So devastating. Just devastating. The Virginians developed smallpox and fever shortly after. And when I say the Virginians, I mean these militiamen. They developed smallpox because these guys are yeah. putrefied. They're, they're sick. You know, they're, they're, a lot of them are still alive. They developed smallpox and fever shortly after. And by October, the Virginia legislature waived its license requirement for inoculations. You know, Mike, I know you'd like that. They got rid of red tape. Yeah, um, I love it. Finally. Smallpox. Smallpox ravaged Northern Virginia through early 1777 and even reached Mount Vernon by May of 1777. Mm -hmm. Now, Martha Washington was immune. She'd gotten inoculated in Philadelphia in 1776. Uh, but Martha Washington tried to contain the spread on Mount Vernon plantation. Mm -hmm. But George expected, quote, not less than 300 persons to take the disorder, end quote. Mm -hmm. So what George Washington did was he ordered the army doctor to send all of the army's medical supplies for smallpox to Martha to help her deal with the problem at his own personal plantation. So that's what George Washington did mm -hmm. was he took all of the army's supplies mm -hmm. to help the men get through smallpox and had and ordered them sent to his wife to take care of his personal property at his personal plantation. I mean, I don't want to suggest that he's corrupt. No, of course not. <laughs> it's just, this country is just always, it's like the same. Everything is the same. Nothing changes. It's always the same. Ali North, like, oh, don't investigate Hangar 4. Because I own Hangar 4, where you're flying all the cocaine out of. Hey, it's all mm. about money at the end of the day. God, I know. That's the problem. Uh, that's why I'm drinking so much. Okay. So meanwhile, uh, while, while George uh, is doing his little medical supply grift, Meanwhile, a third front in this microbial war opened in Loyalist Canada. Yay, Quebec. During the 1775-76 winter, 1,100 continental troops set camp near the walled city of Quebec on the Plains of Abraham, unaware of the coming pestilence. I guess they couldn't hear its footsteps. Or it's like, now, is, is Quebec French? Yes, it is. Okay. You know, just uh, a dozen years earlier in the uh, Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War here in, in the in the States, um, you know, Quebec, Canada had been French. So it's only been a British colony at this point for a short time, although there's been a lot of sort of back and forth over Canada uh, prior to this. So, yes, it's French, but all of Canada is 
is only been British for like a, a dozen years. So there's a lot of French speakers mm-hmm. kind of everywhere, mm-hmm. but especially yep. in Montreal, Quebec and Quebec. All right. So continental troops converged on Quebec from two dire- directions in November. About 600 men under General Benedict Arnold arrived from Maine's Kennebec River. Arnold's men suffered from dysentery, near drowning and starvation during what is just an absolute insane march that they went on. This this plan that was not Arnold's, but they're like, I would love to do a whole story about it one day because it's just like absolutely nuts. Like at one point they they hire guys like to build them boats to get across the river that are like not boat makers. Like they pay these guys a bunch of money to make boats. And then they like, they're like, yeah, sure. We could, we could do that. And they make boats that immediately sink. And then they go back to the same guys and they're like, Hey, those boats sank. And the guy's like, well, if you pay us more money, we'll make you better boats. And they do. Which gives you an idea of how basically, you know, the military spends money to this day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. That, that whole story is, is just absolutely insane. And in fact, in a lot of ways, Benedict Arnold's leadership is, is what kind of gets his men there alive. Like, it is probable that most other generals, uh, most of these men would have died. Arnold was a pretty, was a decent general. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that, you know, a little bit later anyway. He didn't flip yet. No. And, and he had pretty good reasons for flipping. If you actually get into the story, um, you know, he, he got screwed over, screwed over, screwed over, screwed over and finally flipped. He'd been so disrespected so many times. Um, I mean, whatever. I mean, it's a, that's a, it's a really complex story. I'm not saying he's like a good guy, but like he certainly he didn't. He's not like the the black and white sort of you know good versus evil traitor or whatever that he's portrayed as. Mm-hmm. It's a much more complicated mm-hmm. story. Anyway, by the time they arrived, uh, arrived um, Arnold's men suffered dysentery, had nearly drowned, uh, and nearly starved during this horrific march. They had been reduced to eating dogs and their leather shot pouches. What? Yeah, you know, like the things that hold uh, your like shot for your muskets, you know, the mm-hmm. that hold your leather your lead shot. They'd eat the pouches. They would eat the leather pouches, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, boil them up and, you know, get some yeah. animal yeah. skin. Many of them arrived in Canada. Those were rough. Those yeah. Were rough. Well, yeah, they, was, that's I mean, like if you if you know anything about like the Donner party, that's just par for the course when you're in a place where you just don't have any food and you're starving and you got to just do something to survive. I mean, it's kind of like uh, that plane crash where they had to become cannibals yeah, and eat the survivors. That's just unbelievable. Yeah, no, you, you do what you have to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, no, nobody wants to nobody wants to be in that position. But like the story of the Donner Party is not a story of gross human beings doing awful, horrible things. It's a story of people who had to had to do like the worst stuff in order to survive. Yeah, it's like, well, you know. Uh, one of the guys just died a couple days ago. Let's not let all this uh, usable meat go to no. waste. Did you the uh, honor party, Larry? Did you ever uh, play or or Mike? Did you guys play uh, Oregon Trail? No, no. Oh, so I mean, but you know the famous like, oh, you have died of dysentery, of course, yeah. in the Oregon Trail game. Well, the one of the, the the most realistic parts of that game were. Like you could hunt, um, and you get to hunt different sized animals or whatever. And so you buffalo, you would shoot the shoot the shit out of buffalo in that game. And it would say something like, Oh, you know, you you killed, you know, you you killed uh sixteen hundred pounds of buffalo. Uh so it's like you can take twenty-eight pounds with you. And it's like, holy shit. Because again, there's no refrigeration, there's no like you don't you're not stopping long enough to like salt it to preserve it. 
excuse me, because you can't hang it to like salt it and let it dry and all that. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like, so when you put it in the context of like the absolute devastation of Buffalo across the Midwest, you're like, oh, it makes a lot of sense when you put it into like Oregon trail context where it's like you kill 25 Buffalo and you get like three meals before everything's so rotten you can't eat, you know, and the third meal makes half your people really sick. You know know what I mean? Like, you know, it's, it's pretty bad. So yeah, the, the same thing with like, you know, the Donner party, at least they're in the mountains where there's like uh, natural refrigeration. I was going to say, I was going to say, what if it's snowing, you know, it's no, that's what, that's what trapped in the first place. They were, they were like going West and they basically, uh, walked into like a biblical snowstorm that had them pretty much trapped in a mountain pass for months while, Mm -hmm. you know, um, their their livestock died and they basically ran through their supplies and they had to send somebody for help yeah yeah wow bad stuff yep okay so i'm looking at the clock i'm like i gotta i gotta i gotta get on it okay because uh because i'm gonna lose two two-thirds of uh of the podcast in a, let's in a do it bit. buddy yep. okay Come on, pal. so uh eating their shot pouch their shot pouches many arrived in canada without shoes most of them having eaten them because again <laughs> Because, you know, <laughs> after you've eaten your shot pouch and there's no dogs. Yeah, because yeah, Canada is really a place you want to walk around barefoot in the winter. Mm. And again, remember, they arrived in November. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's, win- that's winter up there. Like, literally, yeah. summer summer up in Canada is literally two months long. Yeah. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I, right. I buy that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, General Richard. Like, may, 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 maybe six weeks, you know, I don't know. But still, <laughs> like, yeah, November, it's cold. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, General Richard Montgomery led another 500 on a much easier journey up Lake Champlain across the Richelieu and St. Lawrence rivers, and they captured Montreal on their way. So good for them. When these groups arrived in the plains of Abraham, though, they were both, they were all exhausted and pretty hungry. I don't want to say starving, but, uh, Arnold's group was pretty starving. Um, Montgomery's group was hungry. On December 6th, 1775, Caleb Haskell, a Massachusetts volunteer wrote, quote, the smallpox is all around us and there is great danger of its spreading in the army, end quote. Oh, no. Soldiers would be in close, unsanitary quarters throughout the Canadian winter, so it was the perfect environment for variola. Sixteen days later, Haskell wrote, quote, I am very ill, no bed to lie on, <laughs> no medicine to take, troubled much with a sore throat, end quote. No booze to drink, no nothing. Other soldiers wrote, quote, the smallpox, very rife among our troops, end quote. Yet another described two comrades, quote, Maynard is looked upon very dangerous with the smallpox, and Brigham has it very favorably, end quote. Caleb Haskell recovered, but many did not. General Montgomery acted too slowly, and though they started a hospital on December 28th, many men simply stayed elsewhere. Haskell wrote, quote, all the houses in the neighborhood are full of our soldiers with the smallpox, end quote. So they're just like taking over the houses, which is great because one of the things that Americans wanted to go to war about was uh, quartering British troops. They were mad because the British were forcing, uh, they were saying basically like, if the British troops are staying like to protect you, then you have to let them stay in your homes un- at least until we build barracks and all this other stuff. And Americans were like, hell no, they can't stay in our houses. And then we go up to Quebec and we're like, I'm sorry, we're going to take over your house and sleep here. And also we have smallpox. That was the, that was the birth of the Airbnb industry. Yes, absolutely. The unpaid, unpaid Airbnb. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So with all the talk of liberty in the air, many freedom minded men who were ordered to quarantine at the hospital just refused 
They were like, I'm free. I don't have to do what you tell me to do, General. There was also the problem of short enlistments. Many of the troops were only enlisted through December 30th, 1775. Now, there's going to be a little discrepancy here, and I do not know how to explain it. So just roll with it. One soldier wrote, quote, December ye 30th, 1775, the last day of service, in caps. All rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, end quote. So, you know, really pretty excited to get the hell out. (laughs) Montgomery felt compelled to attack Quebec before the men left. And I guess they had just planned on leaving sunrise January 1st, 1776. So I don't know why their enlistment ended on the 30th, why they're not leaving until the 1st. Maybe they needed a day to pack up. Maybe they want to celebrate New Year's Eve. I don't really know. But he decided to launch his attack at midnight, December 31st, (laughs) during a blizzard. Hmm. That's smart. It was an embarrassing failure. Montgomery died almost immediately. He is almost immediately killed. (laughs) Daniel Morgan and his Virginia sharpshooters surrendered by sunrise. 30 Americans died. 400 were captured. Remember, this is a force of 1,100, a lot of whom are not fit to fight. So 400 were captured. The rest returned to the Plains of Abraham, and smallpox tightened its grip. Mm-hmm. Among POWs, enlisted men suffered the most. I know this is a shock. Officers were kept in separate quarters and better conditions. Um, a week after capture, enlisted men began falling ill. The first 10 or 12 or so were taken to the hospital, but returned while, they're, while they still had scabs that were infectious. Oh, wonderful. So predictably... One soldier wrote, quote, of course, all who had not had it took the disease, end quote. Soon there were 80 sick POWs, mostly New Englanders and Southerners. A 16-year-old Pennsylvanian observed that the Virginia sharpshooters, more than the others, quote, became the subjects of death by that virulent disease, end quote. POWs were kept in cramped rooms. In fact, at one point, 60 men spent 24 hours in, a, in quote, a room so small that we could not lie down without lying on one another. And hey, quote. you know, there was no Geneva Convention back then. They didn't have to really uh, treat anybody uh, with right. any type of, like, human rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people were cold, man. They were cold back then. They didn't care. And now we can just ignore it. Um, desperately thirsty, Simon Forbes wrote, quote, Some of the men drank their own urine, which made the fever rage too violently. Yeah, that's disgusting. End quote. So things were bleak for common soldiers, right? By contrast, officers reported, quote, like they, they couldn't melt snow. What the hell? I mean, there was winter in Canada. No, they're, tr- they're imprisoned uh, in the house. They couldn't go outside, get, get, grab a scoop of snow and let it melt. Okay. All right. You would think, but no, yeah. no, they're, they're like in prison. They're not allowed to leave the house. Um, they're like kept in these rooms, you know, in these individual rooms. That, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good question, but no, they were, this was just the enlisted men. By contrast, officers reported, quote, we were treated with the greatest humanity. The general allowed us to send for clothing and money, end quote. On January 3rd and 4th, 16 of the 34 officers who were POWs hired a Dr. Bullen to inoculate them. Uh, the rest of them might have been immune already. We don't really know why they didn't do it. But, you know, about half of them were able to buy inoculations while POWs. Abraham, things were not much better. Smallpox raged, provisions were sparse, and according to John Pierce, quote, our men march off daily, and that means uh, desert. Mm-hmm. And I intend to march as soon as my health will allow, end quote. Mm-hmm. Montgomery's death, death left the wounded Benedict Arnold in charge, and he struggled to contain the epidemic. Soldiers ignored orders that they disliked, and by mid-February, Arnold complained, quote, repeated orders given to prevent the spreading of that fatal disorder, the smallpox, have been disregarded, mm-hmm. end quote. 
George Washington learned that some 200 men were hospitalized in mid-February. Arnold begged President Hancock to send more troops, and they finally arrived in the end of March and April. But by March 30th, American forces finally numbered about 2,500, but 786 were hospitalized or unfit due to illness. In April, there were only 500 available men of the 2,500. Smallpox, I'm sorry, there were less than 2,500 at that point, because smallpox and desertion had taken a bunch of them. But anyway, in May, General John Thomas arrived to take command. He learned that of 1,900 American soldiers, so again, a month later, there are 600 fewer soldiers through death and desertion. He learned that um, more than 900 of the 1,900 were sick with smallpox. Thomas himself was, quote, much terrified of the smallpox. (laughs) Meanwhile, most terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so they sent a guy who's like, like, yeah, like I'm just, I'm just like, because you, you have like these 16 year old soldiers writing like, you know, like you know, Sylvia Plath like freaking poetry home to their thing, and then you got like generals like, you know, I'm much terrified. Like, really, look like these. <laughs> I, I know. Who are these non English major? Who are these non English major? Like, you know class taking guys being put in charge of the military. I know it's really sad because you would think, uh, especially back then, you know, the only the elites got to be officers, um, especially, especially things like general. All right. So Thomas, uh, sorry. Meanwhile, (laughs) so 900, 900 out of the 1900 are sick and Thomas was terrified. And meanwhile, a British fleet anchored at Quebec on May 6th, immediately upon landing, they quote, rushed out in parties upon the plains of Abraham, end quote. The Continentals were completely unpre- unprepared, and Thomas ordered a hasty retreat. Soldiers fled, panicking in, quote, a most irregular, helter-skelter manner, end quote. They left equipment, ammunition. They even left their clothing behind. More shocking were all of the sick soldiers that were abandoned by their uh, uh, American compatriots. Well, it's a it's a it's a viral minefield you could leave in your wake. Yeah, <laughs> there is that. The British show up and they just they just slip on puddles of pus and scabs, and next thing you know, they're like, you know what, we're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. Like the British aren't that vulnerable, so they're like, I mean, you know, there are still vulnerable men, and it's like, you know, the the way that they treat it is just like, oh, well, we've got some guys dying. I guess we should inoculate the guys that aren't aren't safe, you know, aren't immune. But still, they're not as worried about it. The British found hospitalized men that were so sick they could barely move. Others had fallen in the woods or were abandoned along the river. So, like, they got to the boats and then, like, weren't allowed on. Uh, They weren't helped on. There were even men thrown overboard by their brethren, left to sink or swim in the icy river. British General Carleton was moved to pity, and he ordered his men to sort of scour the woods for the sick, and he ordered them brought to hospital and, quote, Proper care shall be taken of all of them, end quote. They rescued around 500 men in the throes of smallpox. The Americans outran the British, but they did not outrun Variola. The retreat immediately ended quarantine efforts. And so they marched, you know, sick next to healthy side by side or like however they went for five grueling days nonstop through rain soaked woods. And the first men who arrived at the village of Sorrel, which is like a trading village, they immediately collapsed from exhaustion. At Sorrel, though, they met a congressional delegation investigating the debacle as it had unfolded in Canada so far. This delegation was not like a bunch of nobodies. It included Charles Carroll, as in Carroll County. Hmm. Uh, it included Samuel Chase and Benjamin Franklin, 
a guy who I shouldn't have to explain beyond that. The delegates were shocked by the poor condition of the men, and they were especially worried about General Thomas, who was not immune to smallpox and smallpox was everywhere. And of course, they worried most about the the rich, you know, elitist. At Sorrel, the long-promised reinforcements uh, that that Benjamin uh, Benedict Arnold had asked for and everybody had asked for, including our guy from the beginning, John Patton, finally arrived. They were unfortunately little help. They arrived without any provisions and without much immunity. A full three quarters of the troops were vulnerable to smallpox. New York's Philip Schuyler worried that the reinforcements would quote rather weaken than strengthen our army. Sorrel was ter- was a terrifying place for everybody, and infection kind of seemed inevitable if you were there. Many soldiers considered inoculation, but it had been banned after the December 31st um, invasion of Quebec or attack on Quebec because troop numbers were so reduced. Mm-hmm. The troops had no discipline, so illegal inoculations occurred anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, one soldier, John Joseph Henry, wrote, quote, great numbers of the soldiers inoculated themselves by laceration under the fingernails by means of pins or needles, end quote. Mm-hmm. Now, these inoculations were kept secret because any doctor uh, caught inoculating people faced execution. And by doctor, they meant also a soldier who did it to themselves. But the most terrified soldiers were, of course, willing to run any hazard because like... Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So you're, the penalty for inoculating yourself in order to not die is death. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it makes sense. Yeah, like I deserve too. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's bananas, but I, I, I'd walk, I'd walk the five days home too. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, but you know, of course these guys were willing to kind of, uh, quote, were, were quote willing to run any hazard end quote, you know, to, know obviously but, to but, avoid especially, catching us. especially if you, if you like, you know, you enlist me and then you have me show up and there's no food and there's no provisions. Right. And, and, and everybody's <laughs> sick. And then you want to kill me for inoculating myself. Yeah. Kiss my ass. I'm going home. <laughs> well, I, what I like is like these, the, the no food. Yeah. There's no food there, but also like all of these reinforcements show up and they have no food. Like, what did you think was going to, it's a war. Like you're not going to an Applebee's like you're, you're at war. You know what I mean? Like you're supposed to bring the food that you need to survive once you get there for, for, for some period of time, you know what I mean? Like you have to, well, yeah, I guess, I I guess they expect to stop at like a Tim Hortons along the way and get Ah, some donuts or something. There you go. I'd like a coffee and a donut. Okay. Um, all right. So among the real, this is actually, so this is a rare thing on this podcast. This is a cool story about a cool guy who did a cool thing. (laughs) Among the reinforcements were 373 Green Mountain Boys under the command of Colonel Seth Warner. Warner had an uncommon but well-earned reputation for actually legitimately caring about the welfare of his men, something incredibly unusual at that time. And again, this isn't a knock on Continental Troops. This is like just the way officers are back then. They do not care about enlisted men. They are bullet sponges. And they see them, most of them see them as little more than bullet sponges, right? As chess pieces. But Warner actually sort of gave up shit. When Warner saw the condition of the camp, he first did a little cover your ass, uh, telling all of his men, hey, I'm not going against my orders, but, quote, if you should take smallpox in the thigh, it would be much better for you, and they will not find it out because they won't see your thigh, end quote. So, like, hey, look, I'm not telling you to violate any orders or anything. However, like, you'd be much better off inoculating yourself. (laughs) So then 
One of the soldiers, one of these 373 Green Mountain Boys was a guy named Josiah Sabin, who inoculated himself and then collected material in order to inoculate the others. He kind of did it in secret, uh, not complete secret. Seth, um, Seth Warner knew. And in order to protect Sabin, because of course, if he got caught inoculating others, he would be executed. Uh, the soldiers were all like blindfolded and they were actually, well, hold on. The soldiers quote, were sent into his room blindfolded were inoculated mm-hmm. and then sent out blindfolded as well. And then, and then, you know, they were taken far away and they took the blindfold off so that none of them could identify who did the inoculation. Mm-hmm. So again, Thinking. Seth Warner, good guy, cool guy, did cool things. That's probably the end of all of that. Mm-hmm. All right. General Thomas ordered any officer found inoculating to be immediately cashiered and he in- ordered enlisted men to be court-martialed uh, sort of because it starts to get out. Like, all the like when all 373 like Green Mountain boys are all well, it's not all of them. It's almost all of them all get sick at like the same time. They're like, all right, come on now. Like that's, you know, it's fine if you all got sick, but all like on the same two days. Come on. Um, so, you know, so they. Uh, yeah. So now uh, before the Americans fled Quebec, there were rumors of a combined force of French, British and indigenous warriors sent to retake Montreal. And when I say French, I just mean French speakers, not French nationals. General Benedict Arnold sent 400 soldiers under Timothy Bedell to a place called the Cedars to intercept any incoming force, like anticipating this. Once once he got there, Bedell left to convince the Kanawake Mohawk to remain neutral in any upcoming battles. They're the like a group of Mohawk nearby. Now, the Iroquois were neutral, but everyone kind of expected the Iroquois to eventually side with the British because Americans kept encroaching on their territory and the British promised to protect it. Obviously, this is a logically they're going to eventually side with the British. So he just wants them to stay neutral in anything that happens. Mm. So Bedell reportedly, um, and again, when I say reportedly, through all white sources, had a very good relationship with uh, indigenous peoples in general, and particularly the Kanawake. Mm. He claimed it was his personal duty, quote, to attend to the cultivation of a friendship with the savages, end quote. So I'm sure they loved it. <laughs> Major Isaac Butterfield was left in command of the Cedars. So Timothy Bedell had just been inoculated when he decided to go visit the Kanawake. And as he said, quote, I was but a man and a sick man at this time, but felt duty bound to comply with the request of the savage chiefs in meeting them in council at Kanawaga, even at a time when I was ill with the smallpox, end quote. So good guy, sick with the smallpox, goes and visits this indigenous community, now we can specific we can speculate about the specifics. We don't really know. Maybe they passed the ceremonial uh, calumet. Probably they passed the calumet around uh, what what uh, white people called the peace pipe. But what we do know is that for some bizarre reason, in 1775 and six, infant deaths around the Kanawake among the Kanawake all of a sudden exploded. Mm-hmm. Like all of their infants started dying, and death in general among the community ticked up. Um, but it was the infant deaths that are just like startling i mean we're talking like 70 percent of infants dying um and we don't quite know why but we can speculate mm-hmm. uh meanwhile isaac butterfield caught smallpox back at the cedars and was very sick when word arrived that an enemy force of 400 men were approaching now in truth there were under 200 men com- commanded by captain george forster 160 indigenous warriors and then a citizen militia uh some americans some of the american soldiers fled ahead of the attack and many were sick Forster sent word that he would be unable to restrain his warriors unless the Americans surrendered. So Butterfield surrendered immediately. 
to a force that was about half the size of his own. And of course, his force was dug in behind us, behind like blockades. Anyway, people accuse Butterfield of being a, a coward. But according to one eyewitness, uh, uh, one eyewitness, quote, a majority of officers were greater cowards than Butterfield, for he was, in fact, extremely, extremely sick with the smallpox. Butter ass. End quote. Butterfield surrendered everything except the clothes on their backs. He gave up everything. Now, what Butterfield did not know was at that that very moment, 120 reinforcements from Montreal were on their way. They were commanded by Major Henry Shelburne. En route to the Cedars, Shelburne's men were ambushed and overwhelmed by an indigenous force who were especially, shall we say, motivated by the loss of several chiefs killed by Americans sort of taking pot shots. They were a little pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. They demanded and they received unconditional surrender and they took everything from the American soldiers. They even quote, even quote, stripping and leaving stark naked those who had clothes on fit for anything, end quote. So these guys were like, take your naked (laughs) ass out of our woods. Yeah. Now, the problem is that the clothes, like the men wearing them, were covered in smallpox, which then spread among those indigenous fighters who in turn spread the disease all the way past Detroit to the Michilakamak, Michilakamak, to Michilakamak at the top of the mitten, if you know the mitten of Michigan. Yeah, where the, where the Mackinac Bridge is. Thank you. The Mich- yeah. the Michelin Mackinac is what I want to call that. Yeah. So they anyway, they spread it all the way up there and probably farther, but that's as far as we know. We can, like, trace it. John Adams gleefully wrote about the event, saying there was a silver lining to the Canadian debacle, and that was, quote, that the scoundrel savages have taken a large dose of the smallpox, end quote. <laughs> ah, it's monsters. Okay. Uh, in May, General Thomas was ravaged by smallpox, the guy who was terrified of getting it. On May 20th, he resigned, replaced by General William Thompson, the fifth commander since December. So this is May, five commanders in five months. And on June 2nd, uh, Thomas died. His body was so disgusting, so riddled with stinking sores, quote, he was obliged to be interred that very day. He was so mortified, end quote. Mm. By the second week of June, British ships were spotted on the St. Lawrence River. Quote, retreat, retreat, the British are us, end quote, came the cry from Montreal. Another rapid, disorganized retreat began. One soldier wrote, quote, down we scampered to the boat, uh, to the boats, uh, sick men, too weak to walk, from the hospital crawling after us, end quote. Some 2,900. Really? <laughs> Couldn't couldn't man it up anymore. Just like you know, we're, we're hauling ass, getting out of here. Just like no, we're down. We scamper. Like what? Scampered. What kind of like land witch in a wardrobe type of soldiers that you got? <laughs> well, the kind that scamper, Larry. The kind that scamper. Okay, all right, scamper. The kind that scamper are the ones that go ah, retreat, retreat. The British are upon us, and they scamper. Yeah. And they, I mean, scamper. You know, at least they like, scamper. You know, you know how bad? You know how bad the movie Aliens would have been with like the aliens like attacked on mass and like you know like you know, all the he's like you know oh, oh scamper you know. <laughs> I uh, I I that's that's great, but I prefer the idea of of Independence Day with everyone scampering. Somehow that makes yeah. me happier. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Some uh, some twenty nine hundred invalids went to Saint John, a quote dirty, stinking place. End quote. Dr. Beebe established a hospital in large barns and filled them with smallpox vic- victims. Colonel Fry Bailey wrote, quote, it was a very dying time, end quote. 
Because of their policy of, of polling and inoculating, the British had no fear of variola. They continued to pursue the Continentals kind of relentlessly, chasing them from St. John's, St. John a few days later. Colonel Jeduthan Baldwin wrote, quote, the vast number of, si- of men sick and in the most distressing condition with the smallpox is not to be described, end quote. This is, I, let me, let me do a little content warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets a little grim here mm-hmm. for a minute. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. He went on to describe, quote, many officers running off, leaving their men by the side of the river, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 soldiers went to an area called Il al Noir, a small island near the Canada-New York border, where the horrors of smallpox peaked for them. Basie Wells, a Connecticut soldier, wrote, quote, oh, the groans of the sick. There is scarcely a tent upon this isle, but what contains one or more in distress and continually groaning and calling for relief. But in vain, Mm -hmm. he described barns full of men covered with vermin. Some had, quote, large maggots an inch long crawl out of their ears. That's wonderful. That's just wonderful. John Lacey confirmed this, lest you think that this is just like hyperbole. Quote, the lice and maggots seem to vie with each other, creeping in millions over the victims. Even the doctors, sick or out of medicine all. Dinner time. Dinner time, everybody. Yeah, at, yeah. At that point, I just set the barn on fire and just leave. <laughs> that if I were one of the victims, <laughs> I mean, not the leave part. I would just be like, I would rather die on fire than 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 a one inch long maggot grow, crawling out of my ear, which is about the most horrifying way I can imagine encountering a maggot. Uh, and also, that is a humongous maggot. That is. That just reminds me. Well. Of, yeah, it was it was it was a different time. Maggots were huge back they were, then. They were, like they were huge in Canada. Yeah, uh, maggots were big in Canada. Um, yeah. Okay. The healthy men uh. dug mass graves, and fifteen to twenty bodies were thrown into each grave daily. Among them was John Patton, the New Hampshire volunteer who died June twentieth, seventeen seventy six, the day that orders came down to leave the island. General John Sullivan believed the entire army would be destroyed if they remained. They went first to Crown Point. And then to Fort Ticonderoga, where they made pencils. No. And then smallpox came with them. The artist, John Trumbull, was at Crown Point and wrote, quote, I did not look into a single tent or hut in which I did not find either a dead or dying man, end quote. At Fort Ticonderoga, brutal rains flooded the area. Quote, the tents were ankle deep in water, end quote. Many of the sick and dying just had to lay in the water because they couldn't move. One soldier drowned, being too weak from smallpox, to raise himself out of the floodwaters. Oh my and again, goodness. we're talking ankle deep. Yeah, and this guy was too busy. Journal- this guy was too busy jur- journaling to help him. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was an artist. He was probably painting a portrait. <laughs> oh, yeah. Stay still, please. Stay <laughs> he, still. He's pa- he was painting the guy. He's like, hey, 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 no, no, don't lift your head up. Please stop struggling. I want to catch the the agony of the moment you drown. <laughs> um. Anyway, it's good we can laugh at drowning in an inch of water um but uh yeah i know too soon but (laughs) fair fair point fair point almost 250 years yeah it's it's fine i think we can laugh at their death we can laugh at their death right fair point the british not continue their pursuit into new york at that time giving the americans a, a reprieve on at least one front now major general horatio gates this is a, a guy you might have heard of. This is the man who pushed Benedict Arnold to treason. Uh-oh. He was at the center of a coup, uh, a coup plot to replace George Washington. Uh-oh. He was a piece of garbage, uh, regardless of those other things, but he was a piece of shit. 
Anyway, he ordered reinforcements to remain a safe distance from Ticonderoga, explaining, quote, everything about this army is infected with the pestilence, the clothes, the blankets, the air, the ground they walk upon, <laughs> end quote. He also required smallpox victims to swear an oath by the ever-living God that they had not been inoculated. Anyone who refused to swear an oath was then pressured to name their inoculator so they could be punished severely. Oh, so it's a witch trial. Basically. So shortly after the Declaration of Independence got its very first public readings that July, eyewitnesses reported that the army was improving at Fort Ticonderoga. By mid-August, dysentery, malaria, and, quote, bilious putrid fevers, end quote, had replaced smallpox as the primary health concerns. On August 28th, Gates informed General George Washington that, quote, the smallpox is now perfectly removed from the army, end quote. The same day, Dr. Beebe tallied the graves at the fort at around 300, all dug in just five weeks. Was there a big mission accomplished banner? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He wore a flat, he wore that bomber jacket. Yeah. Um, he wrote, it was melancholy indeed, end quote. For General Washington, these opening salvos of the war revealed a deep vulnerability for the American troops. One that was far less concerning for the British, who need only worry about loyalist, black, and indigenous troops, but not British regulars as their strategy of rolling inoculations had proven effective. Washington learned at Boston that quarantine worked, but only if the conditions were right. The Canadian disaster showed that in the heat of battle, uh, the chaos of retreat rendered containment impossible. For George Washington, these vulnerabilities remain central to operations planning and could potentially determine the very outcome of war. Or, as John Adams wrote in the summer of 1776, quote, the smallpox, the smallpox, whatever shall we do with it? End quote. What indeed? And gentlemen, that is a wrap. That is the question we will leave for part three. Okay. Uh, so, Larry, pluggables? Uh... Yeah, you can. Uh, I got two CDs on uh, available on iTunes. One is called, uh, uh, both are called Huge in Canada, coincidentally. Uh, one's called Huge in Canada, one Huge in Canada, two, both recorded in Ottawa, okay. uh, not Quebec, sorry. But, uh, <laughs> yep. And you could, uh, check those out and, uh, you can check out my clips on, uh, YouTube under, uh, just look for Larry XL and you'll see, uh, my, my dumbass on stage telling jokes all over the country. Awesome. Sounds good. Um, yep. Excellent. Mike, would you like to, uh, Mike, we have a, we have a, a podcast. We site, do. We? Um, and right on uh, cue, buddy. Good job. Right on cue. See, you, you got to surprise hey, Mike, me. With all we have a Twitter. We have a Twitter. I don't have my cue cards. Mike, here. We have a Twitter. Dude. I don't have my cue cards here. Listen, it's at like unbalancedviews.com. Uh, you can also, I know we got some, uh, one, uh, we got some emails, some people are sending us good stuff in email, so that's unbalancedviews at gmail.com. You can tweet us I at Views Unbalanced. Correct. Views Unbalanced is the Twitter. If you want to tweet, we might tweet you back if you're lucky. Um, and we're still looking for um, um, the first uh, big-time sponsor. Kind of uh, sponsor <laughs> Mike here. is looking for the first big-time so sponsor. So we're waiting. That's for sure. Uh, waiting on Raytheon, if you want us to plug your knife missiles, we're here. We'll... Uh, we are we are shameless and we'll be happy to, to hey look, I will read a plug that says, Hey, spinning missile that throws out daggers, <laughs> the best missile in the business. Yes. We'll we'll basically take on anyone at this point. So any sponsors, um 
ethics are really out the window. That's not true, but We're okay. Just looking yeah, to, yeah. to really grow this thing. So yeah. Um, bring it on. So yeah, there's that. And also special shout out. We've got a, a sudden new small, but growing fan base in uh, New Mexico in Idaho and in Ooh. Nebraska, all of a sudden have all popped up nice. with like a, a like a, a wild burst of activity. So, hey, if you're in New Mexico or Idaho or Nebraska and you're listening to us, hey, thanks. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And yeah, and I mean, everywhere else, too. But it was really cool yep. to see like this little burst out of those three places. So that was kind of cool. Hmm. Anyway, uh, on that note, um, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. guys.